Amen. Hey, welcome to the Church 1122. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. We are in week three of a four-week series called The Prize, Acts 21. And as you're turning there, I want to update you on the Restore Project just a little bit. I know uh, Pastor Jeremy showed us some pictures early, earlier, but I wanted to update you on where we are financially. Just a few weeks ago, about 300 families had committed about half a million dollars. Our goal is 2.4 million. And so we had, uh, we had some financial leaders in our church come to us and say, hey, we want to do something significant about this. They gathered a bunch of friends and family in their homes and asked me to come and lay out the vision of, of the Restore Project. You saw the amount of families and, uh, and children that we have here. And almost on a weekly basis, we, are, we have to turn families away from our new gen experience because we just run out of room. And so the majority of what the Restore Project is all about back here is making room for more children to... Um, to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, anyway, these 17 families that we are referring to as, um, as, as founding families, they got together, and those 17 families raised or committed um, 800 and, let's see, $806,000. 17 families did $806,000. Amen, right? And if you're doing the math on that real quickly, you, and I think my family's in there, so there's probably like 16 gave like 800 and something. So, uh, <clears throat> so uh, you, you might begin to think, well, you know, I don't think I'm in that tax bracket. And you're probably right. I understand. I'm not either. But what, what those group of families, what they wanted to communicate is this, and, and that I wholeheartedly agree, is these are some people that are leading the way in generosity in our church. And so at this point, we've got about 320 families that have committed $1.3 million. And the large majority of that is, is those, those founding families, those 17 families. And so um, we have the opportunity, church, to, to try to match what those families did. So 17 families gave over $800,000. Now what we need is for the other 4,000 plus people that show up for our weekend services, that we would match the other part of that. And so if you have yet to give to the Restore Project, to pledge to the Restore Project, then there's information in your seat back. We need you to pull that out, fill out that information, pray like crazy, give till it hurts. And we we plan on opening the doors on the Restore Project before Christmas this year. And so we need to take that 320 that have committed. I'd really like to see us cross over the 500 families that have committed because I believe it's just the number of participants um, um, get involved and then the the dollars will just follow that and we will get to where we want to be. (coughs) Also, uh, there's a a, a pretty progressive leader, business leader in our church, and he came and said, hey, I got a great idea, and I would like for my business to be involved with a Restore Project. And so he started the business the business ambassador program here at the Church of 1122, and uh, uh, really the, the, the company that is spearheading this is Latitude 30. Anybody ever been to Latitude 30, right? Isn't that cool? Well, check out what Latitude 30 is doing, and if your business wants to get involved with this kind of deal, you can. Um, at the end of the service, just see some people at the Connect Center, and they can help sign you up to be, that your business will be part of the business ambassador program. So Latitude 30, what they are going to do is... From now until the end of the Restore Project, which is 18 months from now, from now until the end of the Restore Project, any person that identifies themselves as a 22-er, as a Church of 1122 participant, all right, if you go in there, then 10% of your entire tab goes to the Restore Project. Isn't that cool? Now... That means all the food, all the bowling, whatever you do there. This is the first and probably only time you'll ever hear this in your entire life from a pastor. I'm encouraging you to go run up your tab for Jesus. See? 
All those college years aren't wasted. You can actually put it to work for the kingdom. Go to Latitude 30. So what we're going to do, I mean, our family, we're doing JP's birthday party there next week. You can do Christmas parties, business parties, whatever. And if your business wants to be a part of that, then um, and please see somebody at the Connect Center. And, and we've got, we actually had about a dozen businesses um, get information at the 9 o'clock service. And it's so great when, when businesses in and around our own community are investing in things that are happening in our own community. So we're Super excited about that. Um, and speaking of, of community events, how many of you were at the McKinsey Run yesterday? Did anybody go there? I know you did. I saw you all. Way to go. Listen, I was so, so proud of you for showing up in such mass at, at the McKinsey Run. Um, I, when I do the McKinsey Run, I don't actually run, praise Jesus. I get on the scissor lift, and they put me up in there, and I say a prayer. And I think it burns about the same amount of calories, so I think I'm in. Um, but here, I, I took a picture from my vantage point um, of what's happening at the McKinsey Run. And if you, do, if you don't know McKinsey's story, it's very, very, very important to the life of the church of 1122. McKinsey Wilson, when she was 15 years old, um, she surrendered her life to the Lordship of Christ at an 1122 service. And then four weeks later, went to be with the Lord. Um, and so in her Bible, she wrote in very big letters, I want to make my faith public. And so her parents have taken that prayer request that she wrote in her Bible, and they have helped make her faith public to tell her story to literally thousands of people here in Jacksonville and around the world. And they've started some academic resource centers, and they've also uh, helped build a few orphanages in partnership with a core refuge in, in Uganda. And so yesterday, once again, we helped make her, her uh, faith public. And the interesting thing is, is that's what we're talking about this morning here, is we're going to talk about how do we make our faith public. Let me pray, and then we'll dig into Acts chapter 21. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, as we open up your word, God, I just pray that you would speak, that I would not get in the way, that you would give us the courage to receive your word, and then you would give us the power to go and do what it says. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you... Even if you're a new Christian, if, if you know anything about Christianity, you, you, it doesn't take you very long to figure out that though Christianity was never meant to be, um, it was definitely meant to be personal, but it was not meant to be private. Like in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go into all the nations and make disciples. Or in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And so how do you do that? How do you share your faith? How do you take your faith public? In fact, in our theme verse, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, is on the front of your notes, we see that Paul says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air that, that the, the, the prize that Paul is talking about here is Jesus, that he is the prize. But when you and I get to heaven, if you know Jesus, there is sort of a sub-prize there too. And that you and I can look to the left and look to the right and say, hey, here's some people that I invited to come here with me. They're the only thing that you can take to heaven with you is other people. I hope you realize that. Can't take your car, your house, or the clothes you're wearing. All you can take is other people. So how do you do that? And I'm going to tell you, I believe the Word of God. I believe that everybody spends forever somewhere. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're going to spend an eternity apart from Him. And yet, sometimes there's still something in me that hesitates from telling other people the good news of Jesus Christ so that they could spend eternity with Him. And you know what it is? I don't want to be a weirdo. Do you want to be a weirdo? 
I mean, how many of you have ever been witnessed to weirdly? Come on, can you testify, people? Right. <clears throat> like you've been going to a ball game and you see the guy with the, the, the signs and the bullhorn and you think, oh, no. Jesus, if that's witnessing, I don't think I'm going to do that. Or you've been accosted in a parking lot and somebody's handing you literature that you really didn't want and you think, oh, man, I don't, I don't know about that. And listen, church, I don't want you to be weird. I really don't. If you're a 22er, I don't want you to be a weirdo. And I mean, I want you to be different from this world, yes and amen, but I don't want you to be a weirdo. It looks bad upon Jesus. It also reflects poorly upon me, okay, because I kind of represent us. <laughs> and so what we're going to see here is um, we're going to see what Paul, how Paul shares his faith. And, and I'm not, I'm not um, advocating necessarily like we're going to go out and do weird stuff, but I think that every single person that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, has what it takes to share the most, um, the most effective form of, of evangelism in this world. Now, I have been a part of the Weirdo Clan at some times in my life. When I was a junior in high school, the summer between my junior and senior year <clears throat> at high school, I was involved in this uh, FCA camp, Fellowship of Christian Athletes Leadership Camp. It's a, I don't know, maybe a thousand high school guys, athletes, all in St. Simon Island, Georgia. And we were there for this camp. And they were going to teach us how to evangelize, right? How to tell people about Jesus. And so what they did is they gathered us all in this large auditorium. And they showed this movie, this really horrible movie, called Without Reservation. And not only, I mean, it was just poorly done, too. And, and, the, and the way the movie went was there, there were these high school kids at a party. And they get in the car. And on their way home from the party, a dump truck hits them and kills most of them. And so the dead ones are in line, uh, like at this hotel reservation desk. And there's this guy in all white behind the desk with this little computer. And the people in line would step up and he would go, can I have your name, please? And they'd say, hi, my name's Sarah. And he would type in Sarah on the computer and go, congratulations, Sarah, you have a reservation. And uh, these like angelic type people would come out and say, come on, Sarah. And she would get on like this escalator and go to the Holiday Inn Express, right? Wah! And it was all peaceful and there were heart music. I was like, that's cool. And then the next guy would come up, and he'd be like, my name's Ted. And they'd go, sorry, Ted, we don't have your reservation. And so these big, burly guys in black would come out and grab Ted and throw him in this red elevator, and then it would be like, no, as he descends to hell in Christless eternity. <clears throat> and so then the people in the line were in the car together, and one was a Christian and one wasn't a Christian, and the one that's not a Christian saying to the Christian, you mean you knew all this and you didn't tell me? And the guy's like, my bad. And then he, whoa, he goes off to heaven. And then the friend, no, down to hell. And then the movie's just over. And you're like, oh, wow. It's like Saturday morning at 830. I'm 16 going. And then the preacher of the camp gets up and goes, you don't want people to go to hell, do you? I'm like, uh-uh. Who wants to go witness it? I guess I have to. I mean, but I think we have a choice, do we? <clears throat> and so then they, they, they split us up in little groups, and they have us memorize the Roman road. Now, if you grew up in church, especially like a Baptist church, you know the Roman road. It's kind of the four holy hops to heaven, right? I still remember it. Uh, it's Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8, and 10, 9. All right, I could quote them all. I memorized them that day. And, and essentially, you, you memorized those four verses, and then they gave, us, um, <clears throat> they gave us a questionnaire, and we were split up into teams of four and go all over St. Simon Island, Georgia, in July on a Saturday morning, and we're going to knock on doors and ask people some questions about church attendance. And then if the Spirit moved, we were supposed to transition into sharing the Roman road, and the transition statement was, can I tell you about the peace I've found in Jesus Christ? All right, so that's what we're going to do. 
So we go up to, I'm not really scared of people or talking, so I go to the first house, knock on the door, and this lady, she opens the door crying. And she's, it's kind of like a daycare. Uh, she's got, I mean, there's, she's like the, the woman in the shoe, so many kids, she didn't know what to do, right? They're all, there's Play-Doh flying and blood and ketchup, and it's all just craziness. And I ask her about attending church. She's like, I don't attend church anywhere. And then I say, can I tell you about the peace I found in Jesus Christ? And she says, yes. Yeah, peace? Yes. Tell me about peace. <laughs> and so I do the Roman road, right? Walk through that. And she right there, she prays, receives Christ. And I thought, sweet, this is easy. Walk back to the van. I go, we got one, boys. We got one. <laughs> Booyah. This is no problem. So we pull up to the next house. And I told the guys, y'all just stay in the van. Okay, I'm good at this. Y'all stay in the van. I'll go to the next house, and we'll get this. We'll make this guy a Christian. We'll be first back to lunch, and we'll win, because everything was a competition. So, so I go to the next house, knock on the door, and this guy comes out. And, and man, I just remember it being so hot, and he had on black slacks, a black turtleneck, and jet black hair. Not all of it. He had that little cul-de-sac thing, but he was going to hold on to that, you know, the horseshoe, but he liked that. <clears throat> And so I started my questions. Do you attend church? Why not? You know, that kind of thing. And he just invites me into his house. Come on on the house. And I thought, sure, why not? We've never met. I'll go sit in your house. So I go on in, sit in his living room. I'm kind of going through my questionnaire. And I look around in his library. We're sitting in his library. And there's all of these books with a lot of religious titles about the Bible and Old Testament, New Testament, and all that. And so I kind of deviate from the questionnaire and say, so, so what do you do for a living? And he goes, well, I've got my Ph.D. in religious studies. I thought, oh, sweet. So you know all about this stuff. He goes, yeah. I write books to disprove the validity of the Bible. Now, I'm 16 years old with three and a half verses out of Romans, okay? <laughs> so I go with, can I tell you about the peace I found in Jesus? Can I? Can I? <laughs> so for about the next 30 minutes, that dude almost unsaved me, you know? It was like reverse evangelism. Because everything I'd tell him about Romans and Jesus, he would tell me nine reasons. I remember thinking, yeah, I mean, God, it does sound kind of silly, right? You mean, he's coming back on a horse? I don't know. If I... <clears throat> and so then finally, at the end of it, I just got to the point where I said, Mr., I, it, it's obvious that you are so much smarter than I am. You even know more about my Savior than I do. But all I can tell you is this. When I was a teenager, I was lost, and Christ saved me. And he's changed my life forever. And then the dude said, well, I can't argue with that, can I? So what we're going to talk about this morning is how do you share your story? Because what we just found out last week from Pastor Ryan's sermon is that the Apostle Paul gets arrested and he's on his way to prison. And as he's on his way to prison, he sees a large crowd of people. And he has one shot, one opportunity to share the gospel or to preach to them. And instead of going with doctrine and theology, and listen, doctrine and theology are so very important, but it kind of takes a little while to learn some of that stuff. And so what he intends to do, instead of doing that, and listen to this, and Paul could have gone the theology route. He wrote Romans. The verses that I was memorizing, Paul wrote them, okay? But instead of that, what we're going to find out is that Paul... He doesn't go doctrine and theology, but he shares his story. And every person in this room that has claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you have a story. And we're going to learn this morning how you share your story when God gives you the opportunity to make your faith public. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 37. It says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? 
And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul's basically going to say, no, you got the wrong dude. Here's who I am. Verse 39. Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioning with his hand to the people. And when there was a great, <coughs> excuse me, when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, now here's the thing you're going to find out about Paul as we study him throughout the book of Acts. Over and over and over, he has an opportunity to share the gospel, to share his faith with people. You know why? Because he was always on the, on the lookout to share his faith with people. You find what you're looking for. You find what you're looking for. Many of you Christians, you've been a Christian for a long time, and the reason you've never shared your faith with anybody is because you've never looked for the opportunity. Do you know how many shark's teeth I've found in my entire life? Zero. Because I've never been looking for shark's teeth. And I know some of you do it, and you get all into it, and God bless your ministry. You know you can buy like a bunch of them for a dollar at the <laughs> shark teeth store, all right? So I've never found one because I'm not going to spend my day walking around looking in the dirt. So... Some of you have never had the opportunity to share your faith because you've never had your eyes open for the opportunity. You want God to answer a prayer, you start praying for the opportunity to share your faith and watch what happens. I'm telling you, don't stand in Walmart and be praying, dear God, please help me. Give me an opportunity to share my faith. The person in turn is going to turn around in front of you and go, what you doing? Dang it, I was praying that I'd have an opportunity to share my faith and now here you are, all right? That's how it's going to happen. So... You can do it however you want to do it. Every time before I get on an airplane, I pray, God, if you sit the person next to me that needs to hear the gospel, make it evident. And then I sit on an airplane. I just, you can't, I don't know if you can do this. This is what I do. I get on the airplane, open up my Bible, go, hey, I'm a pastor. I got to write a sermon. Do you want to do this or not? (laughs) And either they get freaked out and leave me alone the whole flight, win, or they ask me some questions and I get to share the gospel, win. You call that a win, win. See how that works? So... You start praying for an opportunity and watch and see if God gives you the opportunity. Now, also notice that Paul's going to speak to them in the Hebrew language. He's going to speak in a language that they can understand. So, is theology and doctrine important? Absolutely yes and amen. But it does you no good to explain something to someone in words that they cannot understand. And so, you, you speak in a language that people can understand. And you know what people can understand? They can understand your story. They can understand what you were like, how you met Jesus, and what your life is like now. And that's what Paul's going to do. I'm the greatest theologian of all time. What he's going to do as he shares his story is he's going to break his story up into three sections. This is what my life was like before I met Christ. Here's how I met Jesus, and this is what my life has been like since then. So let's look at his story beginning in chapter 22, verses, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, again, in their own language, they became even more quiet. And he said, verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. Now what he says there is jam-packed. So he says... I'm Jewish, I was brought up in Jerusalem, yes, but I was born in and raised in Tarsus in Cilicia. So he's a Roman citizen, and Tarsus was a university town, and Paul was a graduate of Tarsus. And, and, and the, the university at Tarsus was one of the three largest universities in the known world. And they would have known if you graduate from Tarsus, you probably had a degree in law and philosophy. So this is no dummy talking to them. And when he mentions Tarsus, people are like, what? You went to Tarsus? Like that, that, it was like, 
like the Ivy League of schools. It would be like here if somebody said, yep, I graduated from Princeton or Yale or Georgia. You know, people are like, wow, man, you are smart. Okay, so kind of like that. <clears throat> and then not only that, not only that, that but, but he, was, he studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the, the number one Pharisee of all the Pharisees in all of Israel. If you remember back in Acts chapter 5 when the Pharisees are having a meeting of what to do with Peter and John because Peter and John can't stop speaking about what they have seen and heard and and they're trying to figure out, do we kill them? Do we shut them up? What do we do? And remember, Gamaliel came in and Gamaliel's advice in Acts 5 was don't do anything to these boys because if they're just making up this little revolt on their own, it will fizzle out. But if this is of God, you couldn't stop it if you wanted to. And all of the Pharisees listened to Gamaliel. So Paul gets trained under Gamaliel, which means he was a man of means. You didn't just get to sign up for Gamaliel's classes. Like, he had to be somebody to get to train under him. And so, essentially, what Paul is saying is, hey, listen, if you consider yourself religious, I'm more religious than you. In Acts chapter 9, which is where the account first shows up of when Paul surrenders his life to Jesus, we find out things like he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was, the, he was from the right tribe. He was circumcised on the right day. Like, if you think you're religious, he was more religious than you. And he says, before I met Jesus, I was very, very, very religious. And then he goes on to say this in verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And and so Paul says, not only was I religious, but I was also rebellious. So if you think you're, you're bad, I was worse. Because Paul used to kill Christians. He was, I mean, in our world, he was a religious terrorist. I mean, when we see things like, not, like, like 9-11 in our country, Paul would have been on the bad guy side of that. That he thought, if I can kill these people, that my God will somehow be pleased with me. And so what I want you to see is this is Paul saying, before I met Jesus, I was not a mistaker, I was a sinner. You see, we don't like the word sin in our culture. Sin is a big deal. We are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a savior. When you make a mistake, you just get out the eraser and you erase it and you try again. But when you sin, you reject God. And we all reject God. And some people reject God through rebellion and some people reject God through religion. And both groups need a savior. Some people, <clears throat> some people reject God through rebellion. And that's typically the group that the church likes to pick on. But some of you, some of us have rejected God through rebellion. And we think, look, I'm going to party. I'm going to eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow. I might be dead. And I know I'm going to go to hell, but at least I'll know people. All right? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do whatever I want for me. I'm Lord of my own life. And that's, Paul says, hey, you think, you think you're bad? I'm worse. I'm worse. But there's another group of people. And some people reject God through religion. And the way people reject God through religion is they say, I don't need you, God. I don't need you because I got the Ten Commandments on my own. Look, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. So I don't need a savior, okay? I went to VBS when I was a child. I tithe. I gave to the Restore Project. I come to 722 and I bring a friend to 1122. I don't need you to die for me. I I will receive some of your instructions, but I don't need a savior. And what Paul's testimony lets us know is that 
regardless of which camp you're in, whether you reject God through rebellion or religiosity, we all need a Savior. That is why the Church of 1122 is for all people. So listen, if you were bad, and I mean bad at being bad, then guess what? Then your sin is not bigger than the love and grace of Christ demonstrated by his death and resurrection. I know what you did was bad. Is sin bad? Yes, it killed Jesus. It is eternally, eternally bad. But Christ has paid for you. And you are invited to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, not based on what you did, but based on what Christ did on the cross. And, and, and I'm not even talking about those of you that used to be bad, but now you got it cleaned up. I'm talking about those of you that were drunk so late last night that you're still drunk, you haven't even made it to the hangover phase of your drunk yet. And you're going right now, how do you know? All right, we know. We know. The ghost tells us. Or some of you are still high from this morning. And you're like, why is everybody looking at me? He loves you. He loves you. His death and resurrection is for you. He doesn't love a future version of you. Once you get that all together, he loves you now. And if you're good at being good, I mean really good at being good. I'm talking about if, if you were born at the church, and I don't mean like your name was on the roll at the church. I'm talking about you were birthed at the altar and you came up singing Amazing Grace with your hands up, all right? You went to VBS, you tithed on your lemonade stand, you memorized verses, you got sashes and patches and buttons and Bible sword drills. And if you don't know what those are, praise God. But if you do, praise God. You need a savior too. One Christ died one time on one cross and was resurrected once and for all for all of us. Amen? And that's what Paul's telling us. Paul by himself rejected God both with religion and rebellion. So the church of 1122 is a place for all of us. All of us. Because we all need a savior. And then in this next section, what he's going to do is he's going to describe how he surrenders to Jesus. Verse 6. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Now, here's what I want you to know. Paul was on his way to church, but he wasn't on his way to worship. He was on his way to hurt people that were worshiping. Paul wants us to know that God came after him. He didn't come after God. He wasn't like, oh, you know what? I think I'm finally at the place in my life where I need to check out if this whole Jesus thing is real. No, Jesus just came after him. And the same thing's happening to you, whether you're ready to admit it or not. Look, verse 7. This is after he gets kicked off the horse. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Don't you love that? Kind of answers his question in his question. Who are you? Well, who else is it going to be? Knock you off your horse, bright line for heaven. Call out your name. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Lord, I know who you are. That's what he's saying. Same thing's happened to some of you in this room right now. You don't even believe what I'm talking about. You're trying so hard not to be a church person. And you're like, oh no, I'm becoming one of them. And yet I get up here and just preach the word and talk. And then something is going on in your soul and you can't deny it. And you're going, what are you doing, Lord? Because you know, you know, you know. And I've seen it for too long. It's over for you. <clears throat> so he says, who are you, Lord? <clears throat> and the Lord says to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Listen, Christian, this ought to give you great comfort. Because Paul could have pushed back and said, no, 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 no. I'm not persecuting you, Jesus. I'm persecuting followers of the way. To which Jesus would say, no, no, no. Uh, the church is my body. 
And that's not a euphemism. That's not figurative. That's literal. That when the called out ones who surrender to me gather together, that is me. So if you hurt the church, you are hurting me. If you persecute the church, the people that call on my name, you're hurting me. So listen, Christian, if you are walking through some pain right now, then Jesus knows your pain and feels your pain. That he is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That ought to comfort you. To know that you are not alone in this. And so, so Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Verse 9, now, those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And so Paul essentially describes how he met Jesus. Now, think about what must be going through Paul's mind at this point. Paul didn't know the end of the story yet. Paul didn't know about the grace and mercy of Jesus. Don't you think Paul might think that this is punitive? That I picked a fight with God, now God's going to kick my butt? And so God essentially, from Paul's perspective, gets put in time out. Oh, you want to persecute my church? Here, kick you off your horse. You're blind. All right, now other people are going to lead you around. You're in time out, Paul. Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. You know, there's some of you in this room and you're walking through pain. And little did you realize that the pain that you're walking through is actually the provision of God to lead you unto himself. To strip away all the things of this world. All the distractions of this world. That you can focus solely on him so that he could remove the distractions of this world. So that you could hear his voice clearly. Because 189 times in the gospels, Jesus lets us know that God wants to be known as Father, as Heavenly Father, and He's a good dad, and good dads love their kids. And good dads discipline their children to maturity. It's why I discipline my kids, that my kids might feel a temporary pain so that they can know a greater truth. And you don't give your kids everything that they want. Why? Because they'll be crazy people when they grow up. (laughs) Haven't you met kids like that before? You met kids to get everything they want, and you see these kids, and you're like, what are wrong with these kids? And then you meet their parents and you go, oh, okay, well, that makes perfect sense now. I see that. <clears throat> well, listen, some of you are going through pain like Paul went through pain, and it's not punitive. It's actually God's grace that he's not giving what you asked for, but he's giving you what you need because what you need is Jesus. And he's stripping you away of everything else so that you can know Jesus. Because if you start asking people to tell their story, you're going to meet a whole lot of people's story, or a lot of people, and their story is, I met Jesus at the bottom when I had nothing else to hold on to. So that when, then I knew when I hold on to Jesus, he's more than enough. That's what happens to Paul. And that's what happens to a lot of people in this room. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> and so, this is where Paul meets Jesus. And then now he's going to talk about what his life looks like after, from the day that he meets Jesus and all. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, and said to me, Brother Saul. Now, we've got a time out here for just a second. So Paul does what God tells him to do. He goes to Damascus, and he's praying in this place. And then Ananias, his brother, comes up to him, stands beside him, and says, Brother Paul, imagine the trust that Ananias must have in God. We find out in Acts chapter 9, the original, <clears throat> the original event there, that God comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, go to Straight Street. You're going to find Saul, the religious terrorist. He came to Damascus to kill you, but don't worry about it. I saved him, and so he's blind. Why don't you just go on in and pray for him? To which, if you're Ananias, I, well, if I'm Ananias, I'm like, hey, Lord, you know what? I can pray for him right now. 
I don't have to actually go see him because Paul was so effective that you know Ananias probably had a friend or a cousin or a coworker that, that felt the wrath of Paul before. And so you don't want to talk about praying for your enemy. This is literally praying for your enemy. And so Ananias, by faith, goes to Straight Street, goes into the house, and sure enough, just like God promises, there is Saul, who's now Paul, praying. And look what Ananias did. These words land on me. It says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me, and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, now listen to me. No matter who you are, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're going through, and especially if you got yourself there. If you want to be a part of this church, the church of 1122, here's what I promise. I don't know that we can make it any better, but I promise this. We'll stand by you, and you'll hear these words, brother or sister. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we will stand with you, we will put our arm around you, and we will walk with you whatever your situation is. Even if you've been beaten up by another church and told by another church, you couldn't be a part of that one. Well, that's fine. Be a part of ours. No matter how jacked up you are, because we're all jacked up. You know how I know? Because the cross lets me know that. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to just put our arm around you and tell you everything's okay. We might have to lean in and be like, hey, you're, a, you're kind of an idiot, okay? <laughs> and so the path that you're on is not going well, so we're going to help redirect this thing to a more God-honoring path. The Bible would call you simple or a fool, right? I would just say idiot. So we'll love you enough to tell you that, hey, stop sinning. But you are accepted and received in this place. Do you know why? Because God doesn't love a future version of you. But he loves you too much to leave you in the muck and the mire that you're in. And so Ananias, I want to be an Ananias kind of church. That regardless of who you are, what you've done, that we will stand by you and you will be a part of this family. Brother and sister. Anybody that surrenders their life to the Lordship of Jesus is a brother and a sister. Because we're a church for all people. All people. All kind of people. All color people. All people. Regardless of your background. And not just for those of you that used to do some crazy stuff. And then you got it all straightened out. I'm talking about those of you that are still in the midst of the mess. And God is still sanctifying that in you. And you are welcome in this place. We're going to be an Ananias kind of church. And he says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. <clears throat> And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Verse 15. This is the prophecy on Paul's life. <clears throat> for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Not just what you believe in. Look, people believe in all kind of crazy stuff. But what you have seen and heard. Verse 16, and now, why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? And so Paul surrenders his life to the lordship of Christ. He walks into those baptismal waters and he says, I'm no longer lord of my life. I proclaim Jesus as lord of my life. And then he died to himself. His sins were washed away and he was resurrected to newness of life. Notice the order there. That you believe first, you surrender first, and then you go public and you are baptized. Verse 17, and when I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, and I fell into a trance, and I saw him, this is Jesus, say to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. You know what Paul's trying to do here? Paul's trying to inform Jesus of Paul's past. And we giggle, but we do it all the time. You see, Paul, through Ananias, has this prophecy, this, this plan for Paul. And he says, he says, um, you are an instrument of the gospel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul goes, yeah, but Jesus, you don't, you don't understand. You see, I'm disqualified. You can't use me. I used, to be a, I used to be a Christian terrorist. I used to kill Christians. So if I do a tent revival, nobody's going to show up. Okay? Nobody's going to show up to my meeting because I used to imprison those people that showed up to those kind of meetings. And listen, you know what? You do the same thing all the time. Do not let your past define your future. There's nothing that you did yesterday or even that you're doing right now that can disqualify you for what God has for you. You know how I know that? Because of the cross. The cross has outed us all. The cross, Christ dying on the cross saying, it is finished, is evidence that we're all wretched black-hearted sinners and we all have a past that disqualifies us all for being sons and daughters of God. And he loves us anyway. That's the whole point of the gospel. Amen? And so, do not let your past define your future. The only thing you can do with your past is learn from it and be forgiven of it. But God, but God has a plan for your future. He paid for your past, present, and future. He knew the deal what he was getting when he bought you and redeemed you and purchased you. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Let him be Lord of your life, not your past. You know, when you drive around, you got a little rear view, you got a big windshield. If you spend all your time driving, looking in the rear view, you run into all kind of dumb stuff you shouldn't be hitting. When you live your life in the rear view, that's what happens. Now, I'm not saying totally get rid of the rear view. Look, I am reminded of what I was saved from. Look, I'm exhibit A that God can take the most wretched among us and do some incredible things through in spite of us. Because when I began to think through what I was saved from, the muck and the mire that I was saved from, the wretchedness that I was, and then Christ pursued me anyway and saved me anyway, and he didn't just rescue me. It wasn't just a rescue mission. But he rescued me, he adopted me into his own family, and then put me on the rescue team to send me right back into the place he rescued me from. What manner of love is this that God would lavish upon us that we would be called sons and daughters of God? So you get a little itty-bitty rearview mirror, and you got a big old windshield. And you keep your eyes focused on the author and the perfecter of your faith who has marked out this race for you. Don't ever, 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 ever let your past be your God. Because Christ paid for that. And when the, when the devil brings that up, say, hey, listen. Because the enemy will, man. You start getting used in ministry. You start sharing your faith with your neighbor. And the enemy's going to tell you if they only knew you. And you know what you tell the enemy? Oh, it's worse than you think, dude. Oh, it's worse. Yeah. You have limited knowledge. It's worse than you even know. And Christ paid for it. All glory to God. That's why we worship. That's why we respond and worship. Because he saved us adopted us and made us part of the rescue team to go out. And so, as Paul is giving his excuses, Jesus says to him, and he said to me, go! And I think he said it loud. Go! Like parents, you ever have your kids argue back with you when you're trying to tell them what they're supposed to do? I mean, just imagine if you, if you don't. We gave birth to a lawyer eight years ago, and he likes to uh, negotiate it all. 
JP, you got to brush your teeth. No, gum and toothpaste are not the same. It does, just brush your teeth. You know, you just kind of turn into that. I think as he's giving his excuses, Jesus says, just go. Kind of yells at him a little bit. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Every one of us that have surrendered our life to the Lordship of Christ, we get a go from Jesus. We get a go. Now, there are some of you in this room that he says, go, I'm sending you far away. But most of you in this room are getting a, okay, you used to be like this, then you met me, and now here's your life, so go back home and tell your husband about me. Or tomorrow morning, get up and go to work and tell people about me. Or go to school and tell the people in your English class about me. And so, here's what Paul does. When he has one opportunity to share his faith with this group of people, he shares his story. And if you know Jesus, you have a story. And he essentially says, this is what I was like before I met Jesus, this is how I met Jesus, and this is what my life has been like since then. The most powerful tool of evangelism is your story. Now, do you need to know doctrine and theology? Yes, and amen, and absolutely, and start studying, okay? Go through the Bible reading plan, show up here every week, take notes, listen to the podcast, yes, and amen. But every single one of us are equipped right now to share your story if you know Jesus. If you look at John chapter 9, there's a beautiful picture of what it looks like for a man to tell his story. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples, they come up on this blind man, and the disciples start asking theology questions. Why is this man blind? Is it his fault or his parents? And Jesus said, it's nobody's fault. It's for my glory. And he goes up to the blind guy, and he says, all right, blind guy, do you want to see? And the guy goes, sure. And so he spits in the ground, makes some mud. I have no idea why. He wipes it on the guy's face, says, go wash your face. And the dude washes his face, and he can see. And then, like anybody that used to be blind and now can see, he gets all stoked, and he runs around, and he starts telling everybody in town, I used to be blind, and then I met Jesus, and now I can see. And his friends and family members, they all rejoice and get excited. But the religious people have religious questions. Well, how did he do it? And the blind guy's like, I don't know. But I used to be blind, and then I met Jesus, and now I can see. And then, and then they begin to say, well, where is he now? Well, I don't know, because he left before I washed my face. But here's what I do know. I used to be blind, and then I met Jesus, and now I can see. And they ask him theology questions. And he's like, hey, listen, I don't know. But I used to be blind, and now I can see. And in the middle, that was Jesus, all right? That's all I got. That's your story too. Man, you show, you show interest in people and people will be interested in hearing your story. And I hear people say, but what if they ask me questions and I don't know the answer to? Then here's what you say. You go, I don't know. But here's what I know. This is what my life used to be like. And here's how I met Jesus and this is what it's been like since then. Like, yeah, but what about the dinosaurs? But I don't know. But before I met Jesus, there were no dinosaurs involved. Okay. <laughs> And then I met Jesus. There were no dinosaurs at that church service or camp, wherever. And then I still haven't seen a dinosaur, but here's what Jesus has done in my life. If you want to get hung up on the dinosaurs, fine. But let me just tell you, this is my story. And you watch what God begins to do when you begin to be willing to just share your story. Not argue with people, but just invite people to hear your story. So you got homework. Get out your notes. This is your homework. And everybody's got to play along here, okay? This is your homework. If you're serious about your relationship with Jesus, I want you to do this. When you get home sometime this week, I want you to write out your story, your testimony. It doesn't have to be super long. Look how short Paul's is. It takes less than two minutes to read it straight through, right? And if you talk, you know, if you've got an accent like me, maybe two and a half. And so you start with, describe your attitude and actions before you became a Christian. And some of you needed to be saved from religion and some of you from rebelliousness. 
And if you need a template, you can use Acts 22, 1 through 5 to see what Paul was like before he became a Christian. And then describe the events surrounding your surrendering to Jesus. And for some of you, it's a moment in time. You were in an 1122 service and you surrendered your life to Jesus. Praise God for that. And for some of you, it was a process. You had godly parents that raised you in the church. And you can't remember exactly that moment, but you know that you've surrendered your life to Jesus. Praise God for that process. And then describe the changes in attitude and actions since surrendering to Jesus. What's it been like since then? You know why this is so important? We had a girl... um, We had a girl sign up to go on a mission trip with us here. And in our missions training, we have everybody learn how to share their testimony. Just answer these questions about their life and study this chapter uh, in the book of Acts. And as she was hearing other people talk about their testimony, about what their life used to be like before they met Christ, how they met Jesus, and what their life has been like since then, she began to realize that she only had the first section. That she grew up in church and she grew up a good girl, but she had never surrendered her life to Jesus. And so when she shared her testimony, it was like, well, this is what my life was like before I met Christ. And then I met him about 45 seconds ago, surrendered to him. And my life from here on, it's got a mission trip in the future. And that's all I'm sure of. Because she she realized then that she needed a savior. And every single one of us, whether we've rejected, rejected God through rebellion or religion, we need a savior. And if you've been saved, you've been saved to be a part of the rescue team. And I want us as a church to pray like crazy for opportunities to share our story with the people that God places in our lives. And so, if somebody invited you here today, if you came as a guest, the reason that they invited you is because they love you and they wanted you to hear about Jesus. And they probably can't, they probably don't tell you they love you, you know. It's not like, especially if you're a dude and your golfing buddy brought you to church, you know. It's not like, hey, Bobby, I love you so much. Would you go to church with me? Ted, I appreciate that. We're not only not going to play golf anymore, but I'm not going to your church, right? I understand. (laughs) But here's what I want to do. If if you came with somebody, if you came with an 1122, then at the end of this service, they're going to take you to lunch, and they're going to pay for it, just like Jesus paid for your sin. They're going to pay for your lunch. Same kind (laughs) of illustration. And I just want you to ask them, hey, what's your story? And that person is going to share their story. And they're just going to say, this is what my life was like before I met Christ, and this is how I met him, and this is what it's been like since then. Right? And it might be messy and unclean, and praise God. That's what Jesus was born into to save us from. Okay? And so that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to end. I'm not going to do it for you, church. You're going to do it with the folks you brought. And if you showed up here and some individual person didn't bring you, but you just heard about it or followed the bumper stickers or I don't know how you got here, and you need to hear somebody's story, then you find any person any person in this building with a badge on, and you just ask them, hey, what's your story? And they're going to tell you, this is what I used to be like, this is how I met Jesus, and this is what my life has been like since then. And so, we're going to pray. We're going to pray that God saves people all over, all over Jacksonville this week. Not because anybody heard a sermon from a preacher, but because men and women and students heard stories of some of their best friends and family members. And that God would use you to share your story in the place that he has placed you for his glory. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the greatest story ever told, the story of salvation, the story that you, God, loved us enough to send your only begotten Son, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, that died a sinner's death on that cross, that that took on the, 
the weight and the penalty of all of our sin, though it was not your fault, so that we could take on your righteousness. And the God, you proved it by being resurrected on the third day. And then, for people <clears throat> all over this room, God, at different times and different church services and through different conversation and camps and all kind of different environments, God, that you reached down and you regenerated our hearts and you saved us and you didn't just rescue us, but you adopted us and now you've called us to be a part of the rescue mission. And so, God, I pray for the believers in this room that right now, that they know who they need to share their story with this very week. And Holy Spirit, would you just lead God and direct those conversations? Would you give our folks the, the courage to speak your words? And God, I pray for the friends and the family members of, of our church family that don't know you yet. God, would you soften those hearts? Would you draw all men and women unto yourself? And Lord, I pray. I pray that this very week we would keep our eyes wide open for the opportunities that you give us. Not to convince people, not to argue with people, but just to invite people to hear, to hear how our story intersects with your story and might change their story for all eternity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> hey, we respond to the gospel every week. We're going to respond by singing. Um, we're going to sing the Lord's Prayer together. We're also going to respond by, if you're a regular here, bringing your tithes and offerings to the giving boxes or the giving kiosk in the back. And for many of you, <clears throat> you need to come to the altar and you need to pray like crazy for the strength and the courage to share your story this week. And you come to the altar and you pray by name for those people. And some of you have got a lunch date now that you didn't know about and you're a little bit nervous, so you've got to come down and you better pray that God would give you the words for you to speak at your lunch date. Let us respond.